Welcome to the After Talk at Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. This is where we get to drop the formality of our program, and I get to sit down with my producer, Blake, to crack open a beer, do a little Q&A, and have a discussion about this week's episode. In the future, we'll be checking our email and seeing if you, our listeners, have sent us any questions or comments, and we can address those here as well. It's, uh, it's worth noting, uh, to give credit where credit is due, that the uh, title of episode two is uh, Into the Great Wide Open, which is the title of a Tom Petty song. And I'm kind of partial to Tom Petty, so I stole, stole that from Tom Petty, but I think it's a good title. That was a great episode that we're going to be discussing everything in the after show. One of the new things, or I guess it's not really new because podcast is only two episodes deep. Um, but we're going to, uh, as a way to relax after recording such an episode, we're going to sit back and have a, a beer and split a bomber between the two of us. On today's after show, we're having uh, the latest Woot Stout from Stone Brewery out of San Diego. I'll just start out with my first thought, kind of overall, and then we'll get into some of the details of the episode. Um, I was really... I mean, obviously, we're living in the modern era, and I can I know a general story of what what what's going to happen here in the near future, but I, I'm I'm liking the, how you're developing the story arc of of what we're about to to see in episode three, and it's really fascinating. Yeah, and I think I told you before that um, you know I can cons- I consider this to be the most amazing chapter in human history, and I don't think there's any embellishment required to to make it thrilling and exciting. I think telling it just as it is, uh, is exciting enough and it's wild. Yeah. Where did you find all the information that you did about Kermlov or Karmalov? Karmalov? <laughs> Karaliov. And I, I'm pretty sure that the correct pronunciation is Karaliov. And I try, I make an effort to pronounce things, you know, names and words in, in foreign languages correctly. But that being said, I'm not a superb linguist, so I might be butchering the pronunciations of some of some names, places, things like that. Uh, most of the information I found on Karolyov was uh, internet research, and it's it's a little it's a little tricky getting into anything from Soviet history because so much was secretive for so long. Um, after the end of the Cold War. There's a lot that became public, so it became a little bit more transparent. And some of the things that I'll be explaining in this episode as well as episode three is that uh, ultimately we only found these things out after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That prior to that, there were a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainty about what was going on in the Soviet Union, both with their space program and in, in other respects as well. I wonder if during any of these periods of turmoil that the Soviets had, if more of that data was lost, kind of like uh, the fall of the li- Library of Babylon, or what is it, Library? The Library of Alexandria. Alexandria, where like there, there is so there was probably so much more information about what was going on in Soviet research for space and everything like that. I wonder if some of that info has been lost. Yeah, and. It could very well be the case. And the thing was, is even after the Soviet Union would come out and say, we've sent the first man into space, Yuri Gagarin, and it proves Soviet technological superiority over America, but they wouldn't release a lot of data or a lot of science because they didn't want America to know what they had learned about space flight. So by the time America sends Alan Shepard into outer space, which wasn't very long after Yuri Gagarin, Yuri Gagarin's flight was separated from Alan Shepard's flight uh, by just a couple of weeks. Wow. And so that's why America was very upset because they were like, wow, we probably could have done this first if we had just been a little quicker. But the thing about it is 
they weren't sure what was going to happen to astronaut Alan Shepard. They knew, okay, a human being can survive a space flight and come back seemingly able-bodied because Yuri Gagarin was attending parades and publicity events and he seemed just fine. But beyond that, they didn't have like medical data on what would happen to the human body, and a lot of a lot of it was just a huge question mark. Well, and we're also talking about a historical period where there are advertisements that four out of five doctors suggest that you smoke cigarettes. Right. So I mean, uh, like there really isn't a, a wealth of good medical knowledge of anything that that is occurring during that time. Yeah. So at the end of the day. You, you could argue, as, as some people would say, uh, people were tougher back then, but arguably maybe they really were just because medical science hadn't advanced far enough to say, this is bad for your body, don't do that. This is good for your body, do this instead. So that, that like leads to another note that I took down. Uh, I, I wonder what it would... How, how do I say this? It's interesting to me to think that they do a lot of selection for astronauts, right? And they say that astronauts, when they're going to space, that they are the embodiment of human beings and that human beings can survive space. Yeah. But it makes me wonder if maybe they're just selectively finding the most pristine, perfect person to do this. And then, like, if someone like you or, or I were to go up there... Right. ...that we would just be crushed under the, the G-forces and all of our bones would... would Because we aren't prepared yeah. to do it. When, and what I would say, without giving away too many spoilers, is that that was something that we began learning, the more people, obviously, that we sent into outer space, because the first, the first astronauts were test pilots. And although the United States cared more about the education level of the astronauts, as we said in the episode, uh, the Soviet Union was also sending test pilots. And that's, uh, that's a person who is not only obviously has experience flying experimental aircraft, but also someone who's very physically strong because you have to face significant G-forces when re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, regardless of what kind of spacecraft you're flying in. And that's that's difficult to do. For our listeners, uh, I would describe a G-forces G are the forces that you feel when you're on like a roller coaster going through some of these loops. So if anybody has been on a roller coaster, you've experienced that and it feels like this pressure on, on your chest cavity because you're experiencing many times the force of gravity. And that's what fighter pilots experience going in really fast aircraft. And it's what astronauts experience as well. But uh, eight around somewhere around eight Gs, Eight times the force of gravity seems to be the limit for the human body, at least for remaining conscious. So most, most, even the best test pilots are going to black out around eight Gs, which you don't want to do if you're flying a plane. But if you're in a, a remotely controlled spacecraft that's being controlled from the ground, it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, even if you pass out, we still might be able to recover you alive and well, even if you, you black out at some point on the voyage. And I believe, just from my cursory knowledge of Gs, that at 1G you are, it's like the, the amount of force on you is 1 gravity. Yeah, 1G okay. is what we're, we're all experiencing right now is the way gravity is right Which now is on Earth. The, it's, a, it's a strange number that for some reason I still remember, but it's the downward pressure going at 9.8 meters per second to putting force on you down. The only reason that that's relevant is because at every after every g you add, you're you're doubling the amount of pressure of like what your body weight would be against yourself. Which, if that makes any sense, but essentially just think of, um, like if you're a 150 pound person and you're at two g's, it's almost like you're feeling like uh, uh like yourself being forced back. So at like. I forget what the number is, but I think at eight G's, it's like you're you're like being sat on by an elephant or something, where you're you're yeah. literally and, trying to. And so we do want to clarify that neither of us yeah. are scientists <laughs> or... with a, with with scientific credentials or an education in science. So we're scientifically literate people, as I say, but we're not scientists. So if there's anybody listening who wants to correct us and educate us, we we welcome that. Please. Um, Maybe in the near future we'll open up an email, but we'll but, figure that out. But yeah, w without a doubt, I think I would probably say that uh, re-entry is the most physically um, stressful part 
of space travel, and all the more so because you're not at 1G when you're in outer space. You're at 0G, which is, you know, you're weightless. Now, again, trying to be scientific here, what they call it is microgravity, because they would say, well, technically you're still experiencing, you know, gravity. Even, you know, objects in orbit around the Earth are being influenced by the Earth's gravity. The moon is in orbit around the Earth because of the Earth's gravity. So, um, it's technically not zero gravity. It's like but a fraction of gravity, essentially. A- astronauts have described it as, have you ever been driving a car, uh, going down the road, and you go over a bump? in the car and for a second you feel like you're lofted like up into the air and then you come back down onto your seat for a fraction of a second you go over the bump and it and it feels you're like whoa and so zero gravity as i said just imagine if you if you went over the bump and you just never come back down into your seat you're just floating thank you for taking me back to my childhood of when you would we would take our seat belts off and then one, either my friend's dad or my dad would go and do like crazy runs over speed bumps, and we'd be jumping up in the air and like doing, <laughs> like it would get to the point where they'd be hitting the bumps so hard they'd be trying to get us to hit our heads on oh my God. on the ceiling of the car. <laughs> yeah, so so for our listeners at home who have not been into outer space, and we have not been into outer space, obviously my producer and I. Uh, that's a good way to describe, like, well, what is what is it like to go into space? Yeah. And I think there's even a ride at Six Flags where you can... Uh, In Denver, Colorado. It's an amusement park out there. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that Six Flags is an amusement park. Well, no, no, but I mean, like, with the, the specifically Elish Gardens in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, and I, I can't even remember the name of the ride, but it's basically a giant, like, it's like a big tower... And they, tower they t- of it's either Tower of Terror or Tower of Doom. They take you up to the top of the tower. They strap you in, and it's not a roller coaster. You just go all the way up into the air uh, vertically, and then they drop you. And they say that if you you're sitting in this, these little seats strapped in, that if you put a quarter or a penny on your knee as they're dropping you, you can see that that quarter then begins to levitate and float upwards. Of course, it's an illusion because you're just being dropped so fast that the quarter flo- seems to be floating well, up. The reason for that, though, is that you're also you're not falling at what your terminal fall would be or terminal mm-hmm. velocity. Again, I'm yeah, but go on speaking out of my ass and we're drinking beer. So, um, but. It's that um, because it's you and everyone else, you're falling at a far greater rate than what you normally would be. Sure. And so the quarter is falling at what a quarter should be falling at. So it, it does levitate on its own. Um, sure. Actually, one of the, the better rides for this that's the, at Elish Gardens mm. is that, that the one, I, don't, I think it was called like the accelerator or something. But basically the idea of it is it's like a big arch. And then they have like two towers that are off to the side, kind right. of like uh, like if you were to make a, like a what are those called uh, a slingshot sort of thing. Yeah. And but it's not a slingshot; it's like one really big uh, like swing set, and they they basically pull you all the way up to the top. Yeah, and like then, a pendulum. Yeah, and like then a they, pendulum. They drop you like a pendulum, but for like I only did it once, and for like. It feels like forever. You're just falling, 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 falling until until you finally feel the the the, the actual rope catch, and then you start swinging. Yeah, but that is scary. It's a scary feeling. I get for me, it, it's a scary feeling. Yeah, and um, re- redirecting this conversation uh, away from our favorite amusement park rides, <laughs> I would say that it it is. It's it's scary and it's exciting and it's thrilling and. It takes a certain mind uh, for an astronaut, and particularly the early astronauts and the early test pilots, to be experiencing something that is is stressful for the human body, that is uh, adrenaline-inducing, and to be remain cool-headed and to say, for like astronauts like Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, to say, I'm going to be flying, I'm going to have some manual control over my spacecraft while I'm experiencing some of these forces. And that, that to me, is, is very impressive. And, of course, um, people in the United States military, in all branches of the United States military, doing dangerous tasks are experiencing some level of this and need to remain cool-headed. So I think that's the other thing about being an astronaut is, is physical, but there's also some, some mental composure that you need to have. And in uh, 
little foreshadowing here in episode two, or no, excuse me, episode three, when we release episode three, you're going to see that a lot of these astronauts are put to the test and put in situations that are very scary, very stressful, both physically and mentally, and have to, you know, it's a testament to their character and their composure as human beings that they're able to overcome them or not able to overcome them as, you know, history shows. Did you, in your research, uh, was there a description of how Yuri Gagarin was able to discern between 8 and 10 Gs? From, to, in, in all honesty, uh, that's a little bit of embellishment on my part. Well, it's not embellishment. I don't be- mean to call you out. No, it's not embellishment because Yuri Gagarin, supposedly in the report, like the the post-flight report, the debriefing that he attended, said, I think it was like 10 Gs. That's very subjective on his part, and we have only Yuri Gagarin's word, as far as I know, to discern that. Um, so that's something that needs to be acknowledged, is according to the data, it was 8 Gs. Yuri Gagarin said it was far more. Now, we get into a question, too, is did the Soviet Union look at the record mm. and say, no, we have a perfectly safe spacecraft. We said he was going to experience 8Gs. We told him he would experience 8Gs, and that's exactly what he experienced because every piece of machinery produced in the Soviet Union is perfect and works according to plan. And Yuri Gagarin was like, no, no, no. This was very, very uh, serious. He was a test pilot. He had flown experimental aircraft before. So you could argue maybe Yuri Gagarin knew the difference between 8Gs and something more right. than 8Gs. Yeah. Um, uh, it's just funny to think that the Russians didn't want to embrace the idea that he went 10Gs and didn't, weren't like, he's a Russian and he can withstand 10Gs and because of his Russian nature. that that's <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the art of propaganda is, right. is do you, you know, in what way do you want to, you know, in the same way that I craft narratives for this podcast, which are actual historical events, the, um, any, any nation to some extent is going to be crafting the narrative of events and saying, how do we tell this story in a way that makes us look best? Mm. And as, as human beings, we do that all the time when we're, we're telling stories about something that happened to us, right? If you're uh, really self-deprecating, you're going to be like, I'm going to tell this story in a way that makes me look like a bumbling, incompetent asshole because that was that was how I felt at the time. But if you're trying to make yourself look good, if you're trying to build yourself up to other people, if you're in a job interview, for instance, you're going to say, you know, no, my biggest flaw is that I'm, I'm too hardworking, I'm too compassionate, you know, all these things. So The, the art of admission... <laughs> Yeah, and it, it lying by omission. It gets at like truth too, which th- that's a philosophical discussion that we can sure. have about. But it's just an interesting thing in, with current events and everything like that to to say like truth can be many things. Um, well, indeed, it is said we are living in the post-truth era, right. and and so. You know, that that lends itself to, um, but also the subjective nature of human reality is that us as human beings, we might not always know what the most objective account of our experiences is. And and the same is true of nations. There are nations who, who blur the line so much between truth and fiction, between embellishing and boasting that they might not be sure where the, where the line is and what the reality is. And we, we could say that about our current president, that Donald Trump, without getting too far into politics, that Donald Trump may be so boastful as an individual that he might not be fully aware at this po- stage in his life of what the difference is between objective reality and the reality where Donald Trump's just this great, impressive person who can't can, who can do no wrong. And so... You could say that's very dangerous, but it's something that all human beings, I think, can fall victim to. Yep, and not to be a Donald Trump apologist, but in some ways, the things that he... It's almost like he is pushing the the meter by, by espousing things. Mm-hmm. That he's making shifts, whether by his own determination or not. Uh, he's shifting political and cultural ideas, which is fascinating to watch both in a good way and a bad way definitely um, and and I, I think once again i think i need to interrupt you and and shift yeah, gears back yeah, to right no no yeah, to yeah. A- astronauts so, but, but yeah on on the topic of yuri um i thought it was hilarious and kind of ironic that when he landed he landed in a potato field 
because that's how vodka is made is out of potatoes. Indeed, it's a very it's a very Russian story, and I would say for good reasons and bad reasons, the Soviet space program is a very Russian story. It's very much you're seeing everything through the lens of this culture. And in some ways, American authors and American um, historians might see it through that lens is that you're looking at a, a foreign country that's very different from your own and how they uh, perceived everything. And it seems a little stereotypical. It might seem a little silly, but that that's how it is. And I would say more than that, the American story and the American space program, that history is a very American narrative. Maybe I'm just stating the obvious here because because now we could get into saying China is, has sent astronauts into space. And the Chinese space program, that's a very Chinese narrative, you know, that, that things do, you know, our culture and uh, our national identity and our ethnicity does shape, you know, the way our story plays out to some extent, not to, you know, not to be racist I, or anything, but no, I, I wouldn't say that. I think it's just ma- merely the culture that, that these people are surrounded by. Right. Sure. And, and like Von, Von Braun is a great example because he grew up and was raised in Germany as a Nazi. And there are certain norms that come along with being a part of the Nazi party. And, and, and to and be that, fair, he was an adult by the time the Nazi party rose to power. He wasn't raised as a Nazi, right, but what you're right. saying is, is valid. Right. But, um, but, and he kind of brought probably a lot of that, that work ethic, the, 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 the rigors to, of having standardization and all the things that the, that the Nazi party was known for into his, his workshop here in America. And the stereo, the stereotype, of course, about Germans is that, you know, they're always going to be on time. If they meet you for lunch, they're always going to be very precise. They're always going to be cold and calculating. And to some extent, uh, those those cultural stereotypes are embodied with uh, von Braun as, as a human being. I do want to uh, be clear here and say that people have mixed views of uh, Werner von Braun. And understandably so, when you think about his history, as we explained it in this episode. But... There are definitely people who view him as a, as a national hero to some extent because he was helping, by this point in the, the story, he's helping the United States. And the United States would have been in very deep trouble if von Braun and his fellow uh, German rocket scientists had not been in, in the United States at this time. And so that that's something that, that needs to be acknowledged is that he made these very important technological victories for America possible at the height of the space race and so there might be people listening who who feel that uh the take that we gave on Werner von braun was very uh very dark and was trying to villainize him a little bit but it's it's a difficult question and i i, I took a political science class in college where they uh voiced the von braun question which, mm. which is the question of was it moral to take someone who could have been tried as a war criminal and thrown in jail bring him back to the United States, cover up his past with the Nazi party mm. and with the SS, and then essentially make him a United States citizen, ingratiate him into society, and hope and pray that he could turn out some technological miracles that would allow the United States to remain a you know a, the superpower that it was. Not that I want to get into the discussion because mm. you keep steering me away from politics, but you think of just the weirdness of immigration and the, the discussion that we're having now. Sure. And about and, and the fact that they were able to were going to strike the record. Purely for for stricken from the record, yeah, yeah. Purely for competitive reasons on, on the global stage. Just interesting. Yeah, and, and I think that needs to be acknowledged is it's it's a tricky moral question and we would invite all of you as listeners to play with that in your heads for a bit and decide whether it was right or wrong for yourselves. Because I think you and I privately have had conversations about um, you know, not everybody's perfect. Sure. Not, and and people are going to have flaws. Sure. Um, it, now is being having the accusations or having been a part of the Nazi Party a scarlet letter that should not be allowed to be pulled from your your soul. Um, that's the that's the one that makes you want to question yourself a lot. And that's something you should ponder a lot. And I don't have the answer for that, and I don't know how I feel about it. But I, I would agree that it's a difficult subject, but I would want to state for the record is that there were lots of people in Nazi Germany um, 
during World War II and prior to the out- outbreak of World War II who said, I kind of have to be a member of the Nazi party because the consequences for me and my family will be so grave to say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to join. And I understand that argument, but there's also an argument to be made that Werner von Braun was employed by the Nazis. And not only that, he was, you know, he had an officer's commission in the SS and an officer's uniform in the SS. Not every man, woman, and child in Germany was a member of the SS. This is the uh, secret police in Nazi Germany and an extremely powerful and, and very deadly and corrupt, like, organization in Nazi Germany. And there was the, que- the question in the episode, and no one really knows, but von Braun said, yeah, I put the uniform on once because my superiors were visiting and you put, you put the uniform on to show that like you are very much committed to fulfilling the, you know, the goals of your superiors. It's just something that I did once. But then there's, there's an account from at least one other person who said, no, he wore it every, he wore it almost every day. And he was, he was proud of it. Like, so, and we'll, we'll never, we'll never know the truth, but uh, it's interesting to mull over in your head. And if he was, if you're, if you're proudly marching around in an SS uniform while you're building rockets for Nazi Germany, there's an argument to be made that you're more than just someone who said, well, I guess I, I guess I have to. I'm well, just wearing this for work. I mean, but we do have to look back and put it into context that SS did a lot of nasty, terrible shit. Yeah. But they were basically, they were like the special forces of 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 the police and of the military for the Nazis. So there would have been a, a small part of being able to kind of get away with a lot more in society with that, that, that title, I guess. Well, and there's an argument to be made as well that the mentality of an SS officer was what allowed uh, von Braun, ironically enough, to escape capture and to evade the Nazis as well as the Soviet Union and to slip through uh, the lines and surrender to the United States of America. So so I, I thought of an interesting, again, current events with Von Braun, but I have this vision of Elon Musk and these things that he's doing in the private sphere and the, the very... He, Fortunately, it wasn't very many, but he had a few failures before now, as of this week, as of this recording, he's uh, launched a spacecraft that had more um, thrust than the Saturn V rocket, I believe. I think, uh, to correct you, I believe it was a rocket that was... It was close to the amount of thrust that the space shuttle had. Okay. And no one had launched anything close to... Uh, what the space shuttle had Mm. and we can do an episode about the space shuttle and we probably will at some point but bottom line the space shuttle is this enormous vehicle that carries lots of people up into outer space and lots of cargo it's been uh, touted out as a um when when it comes to uh, spacecraft the capsules that yuri gagarin or Alan Shepard or Gus Grissom went into space with, it's kind of like being in a smart car. It's kind of like being in this tiny, tiny little version of a spacecraft. But the space shuttle was like a huge pickup truck with front seats, back seats, and a very large bed to haul cargo in. And the cargo bay of the space shuttle is like the bed of a pickup truck. literally like a semi. Yeah. So, or yeah, or like a semi truck. That would be the analogy. And so the space shuttle requires a lot of thrust and a, a giant fuel tank and these giant boosters strapped onto the side to take it up into earth orbit that that's a massive vehicle so that is a, a very high watermark that uh elon musk has hit and he deserves uh lots of credit for it uh, but it was it's not the same amount of thrust as the saturn V okay. rocket right. and if you want to know how powerful the saturn V rocket is all i would say is you, you, you got to watch episode three when it comes out, because it's it's we're gonna go into deep detail, or at least into some more detail on how powerful the Saturn V rocket that well, you watch, just have to watch the episode. Watch with your earballs. Um, yeah, I shouldn't say watch the episode <laughs> as as this is uh, an audio recording for our listeners, but yeah, listen to it. It's gonna be great. So this is what's so crazy to think about is that they were creating two thousand V two rockets a month. 
and they were probably I would I would imagine if that's the something that's written in the historical record they were meeting that objective and that's insane to me because you look at like North Korea can't produce one rocket to be able to do ICBM behavior and and make it operate functionally and the Nazi Germany is producing 2000 of these a month Oh, I think it speaks to also, you know, you can be very productive. It sounds horrible to say, but you can be very productive when you're using slave labor. If you say we have thousands of people, and I think the the death toll well, just turned labor really is what what they were using by using Jews. S- yeah, slave labor uh, from concentration camps, and when you have slaves and you're in a desperate situation, you can say we're going to take these slaves and we're going to take human beings and we're going to work them literally and work them to death basically and in doing that and it's it's a very disturbing reality of this part of history is we're we're just going to work everybody to death and some people will survive longer than others and some people uh will be worked to death and that's the way it goes and we can always go to another concentration camp and find more slaves to use on this project and if you do that, that's very different than saying you have a nine to five job and we want to ask you to stay an hour later because we're really behind schedule and we got to meet this quota that uh, the boss has imposed upon us. It's very different. And there are a lot of historians that say there's no way that von Braun could have visited Middlework in the in the Hartz Mountains of Germany. And I think I think the Hartz Mountains are in Germany. My geography might be off. But there's no way he could have visited this facility and been like, oh, well, I just never knew that there were all these people um, being used as slave labor. I just, I guess I didn't, you know, I didn't realize. Maybe I could, should have read closer into it. He knew that I slave did, labor was being used. I did not see it. <laughs> That's awful. Hopefully, hopefully people don't find our... our our dark sense of humor to be too well, but, the, but it's it's dark itself, and and if you're of the type that you're sensitive to that kind of stuff, uh, that's my way of, of dealing with really morbid stuff is to to sort of make light of it, even though it's probably terrible. And but I'm I'm not as much of a monster as it probably seems that I am. I really worried though. I really worried though in crafting this episode that people would listen to it and be like, oh, space. And they would listen to it and be like, this is way too dark and depressing. I wanted to listen to a podcast about space, not revisit Schindler's List. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and it is. It the is. Human, human history is very dark. And hopefully, again, you have to listen to episode three because episode three sort of redeems this, this dark chapter in human history and finds something, something positive did come out of human space exploration and our voyages into outer space. And there's a huge argument to be made that space travel has lots of tangible benefits for all of us, all of humanity, right here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not some horrible waste of money that benefits no one and is just done for theatrical purposes. That There's a lot of positives that came out of space travel. But it started in a very, very dark context. Mm-hmm. It started in the context of a world war where two sides were, or many sides I should say, fighting against each other's the allies and the access powers and trying to trying to find a way to pull victory out of it at the at the expense of such an enormous number of human lives so going back to the the intern or slave labor that was used yeah. um i i just wonder if such a feat could have been well i mean if a feat could have been accomplished using things that are considered to be like ethical means yeah i think they would have been but it it raises the the ethical question if if like maybe the people that died working in those factories learning all those things the scientists that worked there that were probably of whatever jewish whatever yeah people that they were um interning there um if that if that could have occurred, and if we, as a, a global, I guess community, would have ever been able to to accomplish what we've done in space without those that that occurring, it's it's an interesting thought that the space age itself uh, 
the space age itself rests on the shoulders and has been accomplished by people who were enemies of the state. Ultimately, the reality is that there are so many people who will not be mentioned by name in this podcast and people whose names we may never know who work together collectively on this collaborative effort to that changed human beings as a species and the way we look at ourselves and our place in the universe. And so we're not going to be able to tell everyone's story, but everybody has a story. And yeah. those people who died in the, um, the this giant mine shaft, uh, they have a story as well that we cannot imagine and we probably cannot tell. Well, but... that that in of itself, that factory that was producing V2s should be an episode that we do in of itself. It, it could very well because, be. Because, I mean, the, the, the size of those factories in that mountain are it's incomprehensible like people are like and v2 rockets were like 45 feet tall that's not a small no uh, and and people everyone lauds um elon musk for his gigafactories that he he's planning on building which have the largest footprint of any like industrial building ever that's ever occurred um but it's it's crazy because um, these they were so gigantic. I don't know the actual square footage of of what these these factories what they actually were, but I mean if you're producing, you've got to have a little bit of an imagination that if you're producing two thousand of these a month, I mean if you're producing two thousand of anything, you need a big place to do this yeah and the, the final thing I, I wanted to say uh, on this subject before uh, before we move on to some of the other points on your in your notes is that or on your list of questions is that I think the to- the death toll at the end of it was somewhere around 30,000 to 40,000 people who just died in the process which means there were other people who survived and continued living after World War II who worked at middlework and were part of this factory so if, if 40,000 people or 30,000 people died then there's a much larger number that were tasked with building these yeah it's just it's it's crazy and and you to me i believe you need to hear stories like this so that i don't know where any of our listeners are in their lives but like to me it's like oh i have so many gifts like it's like it's sort of a Thanksgiving story where you have you have so much to be thankful for because you're not going through these things that these people are going through. And we're all going to wake up tomorrow and go off to our nine to five jobs or wherever it is that we work and go, oh, this is so exhausting. It feels like they're working me to death. Like that's that's the way we're going to, to feel and be very concerned with our own plight. Some of us, some but... of us are happy about what we do. And that's true. We're excited about going to work every day. That's fair. That's fair. But but yeah, uh, it's it's an incredible narrative. So um, the blacklist of of the priorities that the U.S. government had for scientists and important figures uh, from the Axis. Um, what? How many of those people did we actually? Do you know how many of those people we actually ended up getting a hold of? I don't have a number, but the thing to remember about uh, von Braun is when he was fleeing, he said that he, he, you know, he wanted to take his entire team with him, and his team consisted of the people working at the highest levels. And of course, as brilliant as von Braun was, there were people that he surrounded him with, and that he surrounded himself with, who were just amazingly brilliant uh, engineers and scientists. And so it was kind of the manage, the upper management structure that he knew that he had to take with him. And it was a very large number of people traveling around. And he, he took them all with him so that when the Soviet Union finally breached the lines at Pinamund and got into Germany, they were looking for these people who just didn't exist or you know, existed, but had long since fled. So the people who were left over were the lowest level people, not just uh, slave labor at middlework, but also people who were, empl- who were Germans who were employed 
by the Nazi government and received a paycheck, but who said like, oh, but I never met Von Braun. I had, I had, I saw him once. I shook hands with him once, but I was so low level in building things and designing things that I have knowledge of rocket engines and kind of know at least pieces of how the V2 rocket was constructed, but I don't, I don't know the whole picture in the same way that someone like Von Braun knows the whole picture. So the Russians found a lot of, you could call them rocket scientists and but engineers. In- engineer specialists, really, is what those guys were. The new little specific tasks. Pieces of the puzzle. Well. Yeah, so so that was useful to them. And the Soviet Union got a lot of these German rocket scientists and used them to the best of their ability. But the reality was that someone like Von Braun, someone like Korolyov, was uh, needed to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and make the machine work. Yeah. Um, it's like middle management. Like, they, the middle management really didn't... They were just being given orders and didn't really know very much about how the actual full scheme of everything came together, you know? Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like saying, I really want to know what walmart is doing or what exxon mobil is doing at the highest levels of corporate leadership but i managed all i really managed is to get a walmart manager uh, to tell me how what what's your corporate policy what do you do to manage your own store blah 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 that that like you they can provide useful information but only to a point it's one of the very fascinating things and for all of our listeners just so you know my background i was in the military um, and a lot of my pretty much everything that I did was re- revolved around working the logistics of logistics. And um, that is that is really uh, an art and a craft that that, you know, be it as they were, they found the, the everything perfect. The, the Nazi party did everything very well. Like in order to be able to uh, produce 2000 rockets, a month that takes an enormous amount of logistics obviously a lot of unethical labor to do it as well but you have to have a mind to be able to craft how you're going to do that absolutely and it reminds me of the film office space there's a scene where they're sitting in the office and there's a whiteboard in the background and there's an elaborate flow chart and a bunch of stuff written on the whiteboard and at the top it says planning to plan Right, like poking fun at the absurdity of it, but you know, to be more precise, to undertake a project of this kind of technical magnitude, you have to be planning to plan. You have to be very efficient, very well organized. And that's that's just the V two project. I mean, the fact that when he came to the United States, he had to come to a completely different culture, brand new like language. I don't know. Yeah, different different language. Different language, and then working with a brand new team to do something that had up to that time been unheard of. But what was really fascinating is you, you do a very good job of portraying his, his, I guess you will, like agony at the fact that all of his peers that are working out of the Soviet Union are like doing all of this stuff. And he's like, come on, like you guys are only relegating all of your, your, your space work through the U.S. Navy. And in his eyes, I guess in his determination, the U.S. Navy was kind of not very good at doing what they were doing. Well, the rocket exploded on the launch pad. So. Yeah. Um, but what I what I would say is, yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And what what needs to be distinguished is the the managerial structure of von Braun. Spoiler alert: would never achieve the same kind of authority that Korolyov had in the Soviet space program. Korolyov oversaw everything and had this monolithic presence where he knew everything that was going on he was directing operations he was single-handedly of course he had a lot of brilliant people working with him but he was single-handedly steering the ship and directing what would be done and how it would be done whereas von braun was just one of many and never did the united states government say to Werner von braun we're going to let you oversee. We're going to make you the head of NASA and give you full decision-making power about everything that takes place in the space race. And you're going to have sole command over all of this. And it's all on your shoulders. Do whatever you think we need to do. That never happens in, in Von Braun's narrative. Mm. So he's always 
wading through the bureaucracy yeah. and saying, I know what we need to do to make this work. And people are, people are saying to him, well, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you're not in charge of that decision. It's very interesting because I think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, that's something that I feel in my personal life with a lot of the stuff I do on a day-to-day basis. And if, if I ran this place, things would be different and yeah. things would be better. Yeah, and, and you know what's funny is that's that's like, that is the American ideal. And it's funny that a German guy came over to the United States, yeah. like a lot of Germans before him that came to the United States and said, I've got an idea, I've got an inspiration, I can do it, you know. But his only problem was his employer was the U.S. government. And right. that if you want to be on the slowest moving ship in the sea, it's the U.S. government. Yeah, and I think at no point in history is that more painfully obvious than the space race, mm. where it's it's shocking. It's shocking, really. If you say the Soviet Union put the first satellite up into Earth orbit and America realized that it was behind in space and had to catch up and had to do more and work harder— if you say that, that's an incredible story in and of itself, but it seems like the story would end there, and it would be followed with, and then America worked harder, had greater initiative, and then we worked it all out. But the reality is is that four years after the Russians sent the first satellite up into outer space, we still hadn't caught up, and we were nowhere near catching up. It was uh, a disaster. So that I, that's just staggering to see that we moved so slowly and we didn't take the effective steps and we didn't do enough and we didn't catch up in time. And so by the time Yuri Gagarin goes into outer space, that is so soul-crushing in the American consciousness. And it's this belief that the Russians are just going to continue Mm. to be better than us forever, really. Because the last four years, nothing's changed. Well, it's it's a funny ideal that the pushed all the way into the cold war where like you you would see like rocky you know you have movies that have that are around this ideal that these russians are just these superior beings are willing to cheat at any i think that was rocky four four yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, what was his name uh yeah i don't remember it either a but, very, very Russian name is what his name was. Yeah. Big big biceps. It's a Cold War era movie. Big biceps, blonde hair, fighting Sylvester Stallone. Working, and, and it's funny because they do their uh, the obligatory um, cutscene of them preparing for the fight. And Rocky is doing everything he's doing, going up the steps in Philly and doing all that kind of stuff. And he's in like a lab doing leg extensions right with with like computers hooked up to his legs and they're they're he's in he's in the cosmonaut training center but they just wanted to make sure the boxer could pass all the cosmonauts which is training. hilarious cuz their boxing center looks like uh what the death star looks like because it's got like all these right. stupid innocuous buttons that are lit up it's awesome definitely <laughs> um so one thing that I thought was interesting is that, that the Russians were, the, the way that they discerned, uh, the, I forget which which um, launch it was, but the, the one way that they were able to discern that they had landed a craft on the moon was basically to launch something, have it have a signal, and then they knew it had landed because it had just crash landed and the signal stopped transmitting essentially right and obviously there are a lot of engineers doing the math saying it should impact the moon pretty close to this time moscow time and so everybody was staring very intently at their watches and at their clocks and saying any minute now the signal should just abruptly stop and then and then it stopped and everybody erupted in applause because it, mm-hmm. it was like that's exactly when we predicted the signal would stop. You know, it didn't. The radio transmitter didn't break at that exact moment. It it hit the moon. We just hit the moon. It's too bad conspiracy theorists didn't exist on the internet them days because I, I can only imagine people saying that the Russians are going to blow up the moon with their their big bomb that they're sending to the moon. Well, so okay, it's funny that you bring that up. It's very funny that you bring that up because. Obviously, the internet didn't exist, but there were there were conspiracy theorists, and I we say in the episode that w- there were Americans saying, "Is it possible? This is so fantastic that they reached the moon already. Is it possible that they just said that they reached the moon? They're like, oh yeah, we sent a probe, it reached the moon, and for a while, for you know a split second, it was like, well, I don't know, maybe it's a hoax. 
but right. it but it had this little gas canister on it and as when it hit the moon it released this gas canister and powerful enough telescopes here on earth could look like and now it does look like something weird's That's going on hilarious. there was a release of gas but they actually used like a compressed air canister to like i think it was sodium create a big enough cloud so that it could be seen and, through and it was a massive cloud too because they knew like to see it from a telescope on earth you're gonna have to create an awfully big cloud but they but they did that and they confirmed that so the shock the the shocking and funny thing about your conspiracy oh, conspiracy theorists would be saying on the internet that they're going to blow up the moon there's this paranoia that runs throughout the narrative of the cold war in american history and uh, Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense uh, under John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, uh, both their presidencies, he was the Secretary of Defense. He talks about this bizarre meeting that he had with someone, a general or someone from the Pentagon, where they said, we have this test ban treaty in place that we can't test nuclear weapons on Earth, but the Russians will be testing nuclear weapons on the moon. And Robert McNamara said, well... Okay, but if they test nuclear weapons on the moon, we'll be able to see that with telescopes here on Earth, because nuclear weapons, there's a very bright flash that we can detect, even from outer space, uh, or from, from on Earth in this case. And so some general or someone at the Pentagon said, that's why they're going to test them on the far side of the moon. Oh. They're going to test them on the far <laughs> side of the moon so they can't be seen here from here on Earth. And you laugh, but Robert, Robert McNamara re- recalls talking to this person and thinking this is such a bizarre silly stupid conversation like how paranoid are we that we think this is going to happen but that that perfectly illustrates the cold war mindset of america and the american military is that's how paranoid people were they were going into these delusional worlds where but at the same time it's this this point in, in human history where anything is possible now a voyage to the moon is now possible whereas when within Paradigm shifts, really. It's a complete paradigm shift. And that's what I'm trying to convey when I talk about H.G. Wells and First Men in the Moon and all that at the beginning of the episode is that when these men were born, when Von Braun was born, when Korolyov was born, when Yuri Gagarin was born, this was not something that people thought would be a reality. There's another cosmonaut who was interviewed, a Russian cosmonaut who said, well, when Sputnik was launched into orbit... Sputnik. I, I, tr- I try really hard to get the pronunciation right. Well, you, it, it's funny because... Because Sputnik you, is this butchering, this American so, butchering of the Russian language. Yeah, it's, just, it's funny. I like that you do it. It's, it's, interesting. A, it's a little bit like uh, conservatives criticize Barack Obama because he talked about people... We need to have the utmost respect for people in the Latino community. <laughs> and Latinas and Latinos. Latinos. Like when, when, when he would say that and people said, well... The, the criticism someone made is they say, well, President Barack Obama does not say, I just met with Nick, uh, the, with President Nicolas Sarkozy from Paris. Right. Like, he doesn't say that. Well, he says, I make, met with Nicolas Sarkozy. But we also don't say Mexico. That's true. You know, like, we, we say Mexico. And... Yeah, so maybe someone listening to this podcast is rolling their eyes at me saying, Sputnik. <laughs> Sputnik. But anyway... <laughs> Um, derailed you derailed my entire point there Blake what I was going to say sorry what I was going to say is that there was a cosmonaut who was interviewed and said when they sent up Sputnik everybody thought that someday we'll be sending human beings into space and it was a very exciting time but he says in the interview what we all assumed it would be 10 or 20 years before it happened Mm. and then less than 5 years later it happens that's how all of this stuff happens and uh, stuff is a very general term, obviously. Um, These events. But, but like, living in, in the age of AI, there's a lot of people that are saying, well, you know, AI with, with high general intelligence isn't going to occur for the next 20 or 30 years, so we don't really have much to worry about. And that scares the shit out of me, because there right. there's potential that, like, in next year, you could have something, because, I mean... It's so off track from space, but it really is. It's the space within here on Earth, uh, the development of AI that no one's really paying attention to in general. I think there are a lot of people that are paying a lot of attention to AI. Um, Clearly. But but there is, 
it's it's very uh, uh, reminiscent to me of the space race, um, how AI goes and everything like that. And nothing exists in a vacuum. When we have our discussions here, what we're talking about when we talk about the space race is science and technology and the course of human history and how we apply that to our lives and how yeah. that has an impact on history and how it has impacts on history that are so much more vast yeah. than anybody could have ever imagined. Yeah, so and that's and important. Only by understanding these things can we juxtapose them to things like AI, things like um, uh, the development of international relations between countries and how that affects people or or immigration it, it, Be- it hits so many different aspects of human life those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it and i will concede that for all the the science nerds and astronomers who may be listening to our podcast this is very much a history-based podcast but it has an enormous influence on on science on technology on uh, so many issues relating relating to science and technology so um on Yuri's capsule, you make mention of a three-digit code. Right. Is this like one of those padlocks that you had for a locker in in high school or so that you could get out of the door? Or was this like some sort of a, you had to put in this three-digit code, the 325, in order for you to be able to, like, take, override the controls of the, the ship itself? I think there was a control panel where you could punch in three, two, five, but I don't know enough about the inner workings of the Vostok, I believe it was the Vostok capsule that he was in to, to really answer that question. Okay. So it's, it's a good question though. All I, all I can tell you, it was, it was very small, it was very cramped, and you needed that three-digit code if you were going to operate the craft yourself. Otherwise, you would just be a passenger. That's funny. Uh, the only reason I bring it up is knowing what I know about, like, uh, probability. Mm-hmm. Like, it's 1 in 1,000 with a three-digit code. And that's funny because you could just go 1, 2, 3, or 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 2, 1, 1, 1, 3, and just work your way through all of them. Not that you would have time in an emergency right. situation, but um, it just... That was yeah, that is interesting, though, is a three-digit code. And I believe there were three people on Earth who knew it. Four, yeah. four after Yuri Gagarin was. Well, born. now, now everyone can know it. <laughs> yeah, now everybody knows it. Um, there, you said something about um, that they knew at the time that the moon had little water. Yeah, on it. Um, and it's there were no bodies of water. There are no rivers, lakes, or oceans. Okay, but but now I think we've found recently within the past couple of years that there's actually ice beneath the surface of the moon. Is that correct? Or is my so, is so, my remembering wrong? So there is water on the moon for sure, and that was a big surprise for astronomers for sure. And I don't recall the way I phrased it in the episode, but the reality was at the time astronomers would have probably said there's not a single drop of water anywhere on the moon, be it liquid or frozen. And they said the the reason for that is because we talked about the temperature extremes of outer space. Because when you're in outer space, you're outside the Earth's atmosphere and you're in a vacuum. So you're exposed to sunlight, basically, which is extremely hot. And then in, in other areas, if you're in the shadow of the Earth or if you're in the shadow of the moon, it's extremely cold. Because temperatures plunge. Well, they there's plunge no... for the moon because there's no atmosphere to create a greenhouse effect. So it's it's literally like the second you're in the shadow, it's it's cold. Yeah, and so that's why spacecraft have to be designed in such a way where you could, they can withstand extreme hot and extreme cold. So on the moon, they said if there's any water without an atmosphere, we know that we knew that the moon had no atmosphere. So they said without an atmosphere, it would boil away instantly in sunlight and in shadow if it existed it would be frozen solid so that was you know that was a question maybe it would be frozen solid but inevitably if if that if sunlight ever hits that in the course of the moon rotating around the earth excuse me uh revolving around the earth the moon is revolving around the earth the Earth is revolving around the Sun. Mm-hmm. If sunlight ever does hit it, then it gets boiled away. So they would they would have said not a drop of water on the Moon. And in reality, there is indeed water on the Moon, which is a shocking discovery that is very recent. Just within the past couple of years, yeah. we've realized that. And that's hard to figure out because, I mean, 
if the temperatures of the sun that are coming into contact with the moon are so extreme that water would boil off, you have to try to conceive and try to figure out how it could last long enough to be able to be in beneath the surface, you know? So with, without, <laughs> without embarrassing myself yeah. too much in speaking about something that I'm not that well-versed in, I can say for sure there's water on the moon in some form. Yeah. But without embarrassing myself too much, whatever I would say, state it may be in, I think I think it related more towards uh, the notion that craters on the moon's surface have areas inside the crater that will be forever shrouded in shadow. Oh, okay. No, no matter how much sunlight the outer rim of the crater might get. So, without embarrassing myself, there there might be uh, astronomers listening who are <laughs> listening to me butcher the reality of water on the moon but that that's what i think and is, you know what? is the answer and you know what if you're an astronomer out there and you are listening please well we'll figure out an email here here shortly in the near future but we would love to have more astronomers people well more well versed in all the topics that we're bringing up right now than us on the show um yeah and we will we will i believe have guests at some point in the future and maybe play with the format uh, a little bit. Maybe I'll, I'll kick uh, my my producer friend here off the show, and we'll just replace him with a guest, and I'll talk. Someone to the who guest. actually knows the he- what the hell they're talking about. Would yeah, be nice. <laughs> that would be. And I don't. I don't claim to be that person always. So. Yeah. Um. So, uh, I feel like that's it for our, our coffee chat. Um. Do you have any parting words for episode two and what your thoughts were on it and creating it? No, I suppose I don't have a lot of closing thoughts that come to mind immediately. But I think we're on the precipice of a new space age and perhaps even a new space race. People talk about the new space race. Perhaps it would be between the United States and China. Mm. Or perhaps it's simply between the private sector in the United States and the public sector in the United States. NASA versus SpaceX or uh, NASA versus any of the organizations in the private sector. So I think this history is very important to consider. Very important for us to keep in mind as current events progress, because it's going to be you know those who don't remember those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it. And so I think this, even though we're talking about events that happened half a century ago, is very very relevant today. And tune in for episode three because it's a it's a wild ride. It's a crazy story.